Who wants a graveyard chat? Because you don't want to die. And you don't want the people you love to die. And so we try to, to either push it away in our minds or actually in our own experience. We, in our culture, try to deny death by really making the most of the moment. We want to live in the now. We want to have fun. Uh, we want to make connection. If we want to talk about things like further along down there, we'll talk about living with significance or maybe leaving a legacy. And we try to invest in our physical fitness, in our condition, so that we can live as long as possible. And maybe if we keep going long enough, technology will go even further and keep us going even longer than we anticipated or that we hoped. Now, some of that is wishful thinking. But the instinct behind it is not. Because we weren't supposed to die. And God, the giver of life, refuses to let death have the final word. And so, on that first Easter Sunday, hope appeared in a graveyard. That world-changing weekend is described in the Bible with this short phrase, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. We're going to spend a few minutes looking at these few words and we're going to find the real hope that is in them. And maybe for some of us, we're going to rediscover that hope. And maybe for some of you, this is the day when that hope is going to go from being something out there to something in here as you believe in it and you put your trust in Jesus. So why don't we ask God to be making himself known to us in this time. Lord, we're so grateful to have celebrated you this morning. We're so grateful uh, to just to know you with us, some of us very strongly, profoundly, others just trying to work out what's going on. Lord Jesus, you're alive and you're at work. We believe that, and I just want to ask you to be doing that powerfully in every single person in this room, every single person watching online right now, God that you would be at work, that we would put our trust in you. We would understand more what it means that you were delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Amen. Now, I'm going to focus today on what the resurrection means for us and why you will want to believe it if you don't already. But if you want to explore the evidence for it in a bit more detail, we'd love to offer you a free copy of a booklet that's in our foyer. It's called, Is Easter Unbelievable? Four Questions Everyone Should Ask About the Resurrection Story. It's written by a woman called Rebecca McLaughlin. She's a really good writer. She gets loads of clever people uh, to help make the case. And if you're just like, I need some more evidence, I want to chew this through, I absolutely understand that. You're right to want to do that. There's a booklet in the foyer down there, which you can take afterwards. And as you read that, as you get to know us, I really believe God's going to help you with that. But also, there is a moment that will come where you have to say, I'm going to put my trust in this. And today might be that day. So let's look at what's said in this passage. Firstly, Paul says that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses. As the sky turned black, On Good Friday, and Jesus hung dying and humiliated on the cross. It seemed like the end of everything for his followers. And when they laid him in the grave, 
They never expected to see him again. They were wrong. And Jesus knew it. He had repeatedly told them that he was going to die and then raise again. Rise again to new life. Now, we can hardly blame them for struggling to comprehend this. I mean, keep saying this thing. I don't really get it. Why does he keep saying it? I don't, they because no one does that. That wasn't in their anticipation. It's not in our anticipation. But this moment happens at the end of Jesus' life. He's on the cross. He cries out, it is finished. And the very few of his followers who dared to actually be close were like, yeah, it really is. But that's not what Jesus meant. What he meant when he said it is finished is what he had gone to the cross to achieve. And Paul describes this as being delivered up for our trespasses. When you trespass, you go somewhere you're not meant to go. Now, we tend to think of this as, you know, walking on a lawn that someone's put a sign up saying, don't walk on the grass. We're like, well, I'm going to walk on the grass because, you know, what is the harm? But there are signs that say, don't cross this line. There are signs that say, don't go here around, you know, nuclear facilities and volcanoes and places where to go there is to bring danger upon yourself. To go where God tells you not to go is to walk through a lawless land where predators of every sort are out to get you. It is also simply to turn your back on the one who made you and who loves you and who is always right. And it's this relational dynamic that is at the heart of Paul's phrase that we're looking at today. And it's why you might feel that you miss God even if you don't believe in him at the moment. So trespassing takes us away from God and it is an insult to him. It's a dismissal of him. It's a trashing of everything that he has given us. It separates us from him. And we are guilty of sinning against him and we carry a debt for that which we cannot repay. And how does God respond to this? He sends his son to save us. He had promised this centuries before in words that Paul seems to echo. In Isaiah 53, it says, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And then talking of Jesus, it says, And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He shall bear their iniquities. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many. And this prophecy tells us that what happened on the cross was the eternal plan of God the Father and God the Son, that the Son would be our substitute, that he would receive God's punishment for all the wrongs that we had done, that he would pay in full the debt we owed with his precious blood. He would do all of this. And so when he cried out on the cross, it is finished, that's what he meant. But no one else realised that. Neither his enemies or his friends. They buried him in a tomb. That seemed to be the end. And if that is the end, 
then Jesus is really nothing more than a martyr at best. And we wouldn't be being invited to decide what we think about him today because we would never have heard of him. His hundred or so followers would have gone back to their obscure lives with nothing to tell and just some strange regrets. And graveyards would still be hopeless places. Elsewhere, Paul wrote, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So why is Easter Sunday so literally vital? Paul uses this phrase, raised for our justification. As the sun rose that morning, some of the women who had followed Jesus crept to the place where he had been buried and discovered that the world had been turned upside down. They run back to see the guys. They're like, he's risen. The guys don't believe them. But then they start seeing him too. Jesus meets with them. He meets with them in pairs. He meets with them in groups. He meets with them as individuals. At one time, he meets with a massive crowd of them and he teaches them and he eats with them, and he tells them off a bit, but he's also tender with them. It's really and truly him. And then after 40 days, he says he's leaving again, but it's different this time. He's not dying. He's going to the Father, and he's going to send his invisible, powerful presence to be with them as they go out into the world with this amazing news of what's happened. And that is what happened. He sends his Holy Spirit and they start telling everyone. The first time it's announced publicly, Peter says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The resurrection is the sign of the Father's approval of all that Jesus has done. It was his vindication. It was the declaration of a job perfectly well done. All that we've just said about what was happening on the cross is true because Jesus rose again. It proves that everything he said about himself was true. Because if you say, as he did many times, I'm going to die and rise again, then really everything else you say is true too. If you manage to do that, then any other claims you've made, any other statements you've said, any other promises that you've made are true too. And whatever you think about Jesus doesn't start to matter as much as the fact that, well, he's risen from the dead. And so he says that he and God are one, that to have seen and heard him is to have seen and heard the Father. And he said that he was God's chosen one, able to save any who believed in him from the consequences of their sins and bring them into a perfect relationship with God. As we've said, it's this particular relational aspect that Paul seems to have in his mind, amongst other things, when he says that Jesus was raised 
for our justification. Because Easter is about more than God dealing with our bad stuff. It really is that, but there's more to be seen. If we understand what Paul means by justification, then we'll be able to appreciate the magnitude of what he's telling us, that Jesus' resurrection isn't just good news for him, but for everyone. To be justified is to be proved right. That's what we've said the resurrection did for Jesus. It's the Father saying yes, massively, to him. So why does Paul talk about our justification? Because nothing was proved about me at that point. I wasn't there. Same for you, obviously. Well, justification in Paul's meaning also means being made righteous. Again, that prophecy that I read earlier from centuries before Jesus talks about this. It says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. One righteous one makes many righteous. And righteousness is about, it's about being right. And in God's eyes, again, this is far more than just avoiding the bad stuff. It's about doing what is good. It's about being good. It's about being in a right relationship with God. If we compare ourselves to Jesus on this score, well, we won't bother doing that, will we? Going to compare ourselves to thing, bad things avoided? Uh, no. Going to compare ourselves to good things done? No. Going to compare ourselves to a relationship with God the Father? The eternal Son has always known him? No. We're going to bother doing that, are we? Maybe he's done something for us. That's wonderful. But, I mean, the state of us. How could we possibly be like Jesus? How could we possibly have a relationship with the Father? like Jesus, unless Jesus was prepared to share everything that he had with us. And it turns out that this is exactly what he and the Father had always planned to do. Christians sometimes say that being justified is just as if I'd never sinned. And I understand that because it's, it's a thing that we can sound, hear, and remember. But that is really only the half of it. That would take us to a position of kind of moral neutrality. Just as if I'd never sinned. Okay, great, I'm back to square one. Oh, five minutes later, oh no, it's gone wrong again. It's gone wrong again, because it will do. Because that's what we do, left to ourselves, isn't it? That's not what he's done. Being justified is just as if I'd done everything perfectly like Jesus. This is the logic of the phrase that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. When he went to the cross, he took our sins with him. And when he rose from the grave, he brought our justification with him. Our sins caused Jesus' death, but his life causes us to be justified, to be made righteous, because he shares everything with us. 
We're going to finish by looking at four different ways in which we could try and get this into our head. Different ones might land differently for you. But I think they've all got some important things to say to us. So there's one by itself and then, then three that are kind of similar to each other. First one, this one. If you have been to a wedding, there's a moment where the bridegroom and the bride say to each other, all that I have, I share with you. And maybe sometimes you'll look at the two of them and be like, well, that's really good news for him. Or other times you might be like, that's, you know, gosh, that's really, that's great. But I mean, obviously, usually what we mean by that or what we expect when two people get married is that they're both bringing some good things to this relationship. Well, with this one, Jesus shares with everyone who puts their trust in him everything that he has. This is a totally one-sided deal. Imagine a king, limitlessly wealthy and incredibly limitlessly loving and generous. Imagine hearing that a king has united himself in marriage to a messed up, debt-ridden prostitute who's been enslaved to a pimp. And as he does so, he takes away from her all the wrong that she has done and all the wrong that has been done to her. And he gives her, in exchange for that, all of his goodness. So not only have her debts been paid, but she now has a joint bank account with him that has billions and billions and trillions of pounds in it. And she is given beautiful clothing to wear instead of what she used to wear. That pimp and the other men, they have no claim on her anymore because she belongs to her husband. A legal change has happened to her. And all that she hears every day is his delight in her. And this isn't just me being like, what's the most sentimental thing I can think of that might move you to understand the love that God has for you? This is what God says marriage is about. Paul says, he talks about marriage, he says, it's a mystery and I'm talking about Christ and his church. All that I am, I share with you. All that I have, I give to you. That's what he says to any who come to him. So that's one way. We started in a graveyard, confronted with our fear of death. Let's look at just three other great fears and how Jesus' justification of us transforms each of them. Maybe your primary fear that you experience is guilt. This nagging sense of God's disapproval. This expectation that one day you're going to be caught out. And it's either you're going to do something so bad, there's no coming back from it, or someone's going to know something about you or, you know, more, God knows something about you. There's still, he's dealt with some things, but there's still something remaining. Well, Jesus was punished for all your sins, all of them, and has now been vindicated in the most unanswerable way. 
So if you're thinking, well, I've still got these sins going around, you're arguing with God at that point. You're arguing with Jesus. Your guilt has been dealt with by God the perfect judge and is replaced with Christ's righteousness. It's just, it's not that you're, it's not that you're not guilty. You're not not guilty. It's that you're declared perfect. Not even an innocent bystander. It's like perfect. God isn't pretending here. Like, this, like, this isn't true because I did do those things and I have done wrong for those things and I'm not like Jesus. And like, well, that's true. God isn't like, oh, I just won't think about it. God's saying, no, I dealt with them. I really punished my son for those sins and he really gives you his goodness in return. No one's fooled here. No one's been blinded here. This isn't a trick. This is the will of God. We see this all the way through Jesus' life, don't we? He, just, he seems to spend most of his time with people who everyone else considers the worst of sinners. So if there's guilt and, and just that nagging in you, and you're like, Jesus won't want to be with me. He says in so many ways, come to me. Come to me. You who are heavy laden. Some of you are laden with things that you've done. And they may have been awful things. Jesus to take that guilt away from you and give you his righteousness instead. He wants you to experience the joy and the sheer relief of a guilt-free life. So that's guilt. Maybe for you, you see life as a power, sl- a power struggle and you're just, you're just fearfully aware of forces that are at work beyond your control. They might be human, they might be beyond that, but all you know is you're just, you know, you're kind of blown around by everything else. If you don't appease those powers, you're in desperate trouble. What is the greatest power we face? Well, death, because none of us escape it. And death seemed to have consumed Jesus. It seemed to have consumed Jesus until he burst out of it. It's like, I don't know if this is the right image or not, but I'm going to say it anyway. It's like a kind of, you know, a superhero monster movie, that kind of thing. It takes, you know, a big, scary, horrible creature, takes hold of the hero and swallows him whole and thinks that he's won. And then suddenly there's just a splattering of guts everywhere. I'm sorry if there are any little kids still here. But he's burst out of the... He's burst out of the monster. He has conquered it. He has killed it. He's destroyed it. It couldn't have a claim on him, Peter says. Death had to submit to him. Couldn't hold him. It can never hold him. He reigns now by the power of indestructible life. Now we see this through his life because he goes around, what does he do? He sees terrible things and what does he say? He says, oh, can't do anything about that. Oh no, that's terrible. Oh my goodness. No, he heals the sick. He sees people who are oppressed and he sets them free. He even sees people who are dead and he raises them because he has all authority over all of these things. He resists temptation. So that power doesn't get to hold him either. So to put your trust in him, to receive all that he has, is to receive his authority. 
We need be slaves of sin and fearful of death no longer because God, through Jesus, has broken the power of both of those mortal enemies. The power that you need isn't in you. You don't have it. And it isn't in those other forces that intimidate you and that try to claim your allegiance. It is in Christ alone. And he wants to put his power in you and then work his power through you for the good of those around you. And so maybe today is the day when you stop trusting those other powers and you submit to him who reigns over all and protects those who are his own. Thirdly and finally, if it's shame that most worries you, there's things that you know that you don't want anyone else to know, or maybe things that have happened that mean everyone says a thing about you or even about your family or even about your nation, if it's shame that worries you most, well, Jesus was hung naked from a cross. The lowest point in a lifetime of humiliation. But he has now ascended to glory. He sits at the right hand of the Father and receives the praise of all heaven And that's amazing enough, but that is an anticipation of what's going to happen when he returns. And we're told that all creation will worship him. So from that shame, he has risen to glory. And so if he's giving us everything that he's got, our shame at what we've done wrong, our shame at what's been said about us or has been done to us is overwhelmed by God's delight in us and Jesus' declaration that we are his pure bride. He is not ashamed to be associated with us. Quite the opposite, in fact. He was known as a friend of sinners. He never said, no, 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 you've got that all wrong. He said, yes, exactly that. That's who I am. He brings you into a relationship with him out of his free choice, out of his phenomenal, overflowing love. No family history can change this. He gives you a new name. As I prepared this, that was, that was really important for someone, that your family history, which is defining you, Jesus says, no, I'm giving you a new name. I'm placing you in a new family. That is what defines you from now on. Can we see this throughout his life on earth? He just goes to the margins. He goes to people that no one else wants to be near. He touches people who no one else will touch. Untouchables, Jesus says, I'm touching you, I'm changing you, and I'm bringing you right into the centre to be with me. The only people who missed out on his love and acceptance were those who trusted in themselves. Those who thought they had a great name. But when this is true, it changes everything. The game of keeping up appearances is over for those of us who believe in him. We've admitted how awful we are. And we've been given his glory in return. 
So don't hide from him. Don't hide from him. Take, take off that mask and come to him. He knows all the things you've done. Actually, he knows more about them than you do. And it is his pleasure to crown you with his son's honour. So that's four ways to understand what raised for our justification means. It is this phenomenal marriage. It's, it's guilt dealt with and righteousness declared. It's power overturned and now given to us. It's shame absolutely transformed and given glory instead. However you want to look at it, The only thing we bring to the situation is a confession of our desperate need for him and our faith in his solution. He has done all the work. He even brought you here today that you would hear this, that you would believe in it. I mean, there's just no logic to you trying. There's just no logic to you bring it. What do you bring to this? Well, sins to be forgiven, shame to be washed away, powerlessness to be acknowledged and to be just given to him. He's putting this before you today to believe that Jesus was delivered up for your trespasses and raised for your justification. And if you will do this, then the grave will no longer be a hopeless place but merely a doorway to the fullness of God's eternal love and peace. Those women who went to Jesus' grave discovered that it was a garden after all. It was a place of life, of new starts, of of new creation. That is what God has done for us. That is what he offers all of us if we will only believe him. You can do that today. You can do that right now. We're just going to sing about his victory in a moment. I'd love to encourage you, if you're able to stand, just to, to stand and to, and to come to him. And I just want to speak to you firstly if this is new. If you know, you're like, I've... This, you may have even been around church for a while and you enjoy it and you like the people here, but believing this, putting all your faith in Jesus, you're like, I've never done that. And he's telling you today to do so. He's saying there need be nothing that comes between you and him. You're like, oh, the things I've done, he knows. What I'm like, yeah, he knows. And he's inviting you. In fact, it's the very basis of his invitation. Your weakness, your hopelessness without him. And so he's asking you just to, just to surrender. Say, yeah, I can't do it. I need you. To admit your sin. To admit your trespass. To admit that you've done what you shouldn't have done. To admit your need. And to believe that he has dealt with it all. That he, not by accident, but by design, was delivered up for your trespasses. 
that he gloriously, really, not sentimentally, has been raised for your justification. He invites you now, today, to put your trust in that. It's a moment of decision. It is a moment of change. It's not just a line in the sand. It is an earthquake in your life. You can do it now by saying yes to Jesus. Others of you, you've said yes. You know this is generally true of you. And he's just inviting you today to have a deeper awareness. Maybe something particularly just resonated. Maybe you're used to hearing about guilt and it's shame you really needed to know the glorious news of the gospel about. Maybe you've been feeling so powerless, even about sin in your life. I just keep doing it and keep doing it. And Jesus is saying, I've got power for you. Maybe it's that word about a new name. The people have said, this is your family. This is your legacy. And Jesus today says, no, I'm your family and I am your future. And he's inviting you to believe that and just to step into it. There may even be a confession to say, God, I just, uh, 1 John 1 verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So you can just say to him, if there's, just, if there's still a guilt thing, say, God, I just need to say this again. I'm sorry. And today you're going to know it is then dealt with. And righteousness is given in return. You can do that in your heart right now. Or if it's the shame that you're feeling, he's saying, look what I did. And look what I give. Look what I'm giving you, he says. Giving you my all. Lord, however we're coming to you today, it's, it's with need. It's in hope. And so, God, we pray trust in our different places we just pray Lord Jesus save me save me transform me do what only you can do I believe that you have done it for me now by the power of his Holy Spirit as you've doing that in whatever way it is for you he is at work And he's changing things in your life. Even right now, he's changing things. In your heart and your mind, he's changing things. Because he's alive. He's risen from the dead. He's giving you a greater awareness of his all that he has given you. He's setting you free. He's inviting you to sing. And to discover this wonderful reality. Delivered up for our trespasses, raised for our justification. Let's sing about our wonderful God.